0: All right, saints, if you would open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10. As you find yourself in Daniel chapter 10, just a couple of of, um, verses I want to read to you, um, just so you can kind of gravitate to what's going on. Keep in mind that um, this morning, this message is going to be intense. By intense, I mean that there's going to be a lot of detail. If you want an outline... Um, one of the things that was the warfare this morning is rather than just getting an outline for me, um, we printed like 20 of them. So if you want an outline, um, you can get an outline. Um, And so either, uh, um, I don't know if Tim's getting them now or or, uh, he didn't tell me why he left. So um, either he's getting them now, and you guys can just say, hey, um, yeah, I'd like an outline. It'll just save you a, a ton of notes, um, and you can follow along as you go through that. But if you're a note-taker, simply go through. So if anyone wants an outline, just raise their hand. Um, our, our masked ushers will hand them out to you, and uh, um, they'll, they'll, um, they'll get you what you need. So just keep your hand raised. Um, they, they will be getting them to you. So um, just keep them up. Like I said, we have plenty of them. So as you go through this, um, you, can, you can, like I said, follow along on this outline. Um, you'll be able to, to see, you know, kind of what I have up here. And, and, you know, as God moves on your heart to take notes, take notes. Um, but like I said, this is, this is key. And the reason that it's key is um, that the, the, the scripture teaches us that, um, you know, there's a few things that are in our walks that we should not be ignorant of. You know, we shouldn't be ignorant of the spiritual gifts. We shouldn't be ignorant of the end times. We shouldn't be ignorant of God's plan for Israel. These are things that we should not be ignorant of. And what we see is this, that too often I think we're ignorant of the, the enemy. We're ignorant of his wiles. We're ignorant of of what he can and what he cannot do. And so within our text this morning... If you want to go to Daniel chapter 10, and just let's read through verses 12 and 13. It just declares this. Then he said to me, do not fear Daniel from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God. Your words were heard, and I've come because of your words. And in verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days and behold Michael one of the chief princes came to help me for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. So we see that this angelic being um, could very well be Gabriel but we'll just call him the angelic being had come to Daniel as soon as Daniel started praying. And in in verse 2 here of Daniel chapter 10, it literally says that he was mourning three full weeks. He was praying, he was fasting, and he was literally, you know, seeking the Lord for 21 days. And lo and behold, we see here that that prince in verse 13 of the kingdom of Persia withstood this angelic being for 21 days. But as soon as Daniel started praying... His words were heard, and the angel was dispatched because of Daniel's words, because of his heart, but because of that spiritual warfare that was there. And as this angel was, you know, held back, keep in mind that if it would not been for Michael, Michael the archangel, and so he was one of the chief princes, the chief spiritual princes, that he came, rescued this angel, took on that battle with the kings of Persia as it says there in the the plurality there at the end of verse 13, as he takes on that battle, then this angel is allowed to be dispatched and come and speak to Daniel. Now, there are certain things we've talked about that the scriptures teaches us not to be ignorant of. And, you know, one of those things is don't be ignorant of the spiritual gifts. Don't be ignorant of God's place um, that Israel has with God. Don't be ignorant of um, the end times, and so there's just certain things that you know God through His people says, "Don't be ignorant." Well, there's a passage in Second Corinthians, um, chapter two. I want to read it to you. It just basically speaks this beautiful truth. But in Second Corinthians two, verse eleven, it says this. Um, "...lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices." Satan has devices, he has schemes, he has plans, and one of the things that scripture tries to teach us is not to be ignorant of those devices. Now, those that Paul had taught, he said, listen, I've told you who he is, I told you how he is, so what we're going to be looking at here this morning is just a couple of basic truths in dealing with spiritual warfare. The first we're going to see is the creation, and we'll be looking at that, how Satan is not an equal to God. The second one that we're going to be looking at is Satan's limited control. He can only do certain things. He has to have permission. And the, the third, and I think the key, is going to be the weapons that we have. There are certain weapons that we have against spiritual warfare, and I think as Christians we need to understand what those weapons are and be mindful of them. Now, there's a passage that's found in um, 1 Peter chapter 5. I want to read it to you. It's key when it comes to understanding who this enemy is, what he does. In 1 Peter chapter 5, I want to read verses 8 and 9 to you. It declares this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. At this point, I love how, you know, Peter, he calls Satan this roaring lion. He doesn't call him a devouring lion. He's a roaring lion. He's the one that wants to just simply get you running in a direction that's not of God. And so he says this, be sober and be vigilant, there's some things that we have to be aware of as far as the, the, the workings of the enemy and how he works and how he moves. So here, <clears throat> Peter simply says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, keep in mind, he has access. <clears throat> he walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And here's the beautiful thing. What, what God does, he doesn't say battle them. He just says, just resist them. When you have that tendency where you hear the lion and the lion is going to be behind your roars and he's going to make you run. If you've ever watched the nature shows, what's interesting is this, you have the female lions that are there, they're, they're kind of out in the distance, the male lion comes behind and the, 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 the gazelle and he roars he caused them to run and as the gazelle start booking from this male lion all the female lions are awaiting there you know just in the lurks and as as they start fleeing when they get there female lions just pounce on them and it's it's a it's an incredible thing to watch how this male lion the one that's there he doesn't do the chasing he just walks up roars gets them running in the right direction and, and that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants us getting running in the direction away from God. And the answer that Peter says is just resist him. Just resist. When you have a tendency, when you hear the enemy and he wants you to flee, he wants you not to look to God, just resist him. Be steadfast in the faith. Realize God is in control. Realize that God is moving. Realize that God has everything in control. What we see here, and I think the key to understanding spiritual warfare Is this Satan is not God's equal? You've got to highlight this, you've got to understand it. There's two passages found in the book of Colossians, and I want to share them both to you. The first is found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, which simply declares this For by him, this is by Jesus Christ, all things. Were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Now, as we see this passage that, you know, Paul writes to the church of Colossae, he says, you have to understand that everything was created by Jesus Christ. God created everything. He created every angel. He created every cherub. He created every seraph. He created man and the animals. He created the stars and the earth, the sun and the moon. There's nothing that was created that God didn't create. So keep in mind that as a created being, it's not God's equal. If you want to know kind of what Satan is, um, put it this way. There's a two-year-old that throws a tantrum, and there's a parent. Who's in control here? Well, I know nowadays you're questioning it, but keep in mind that back in our day, it was very evident the parent was in control, not the two-year-old throwing a tantrum. Satan is like this. He's a little two-year-old throwing a tantrum, and he's not going to grow up over two. He's going to be this little tiny two-year-old his entire life compared to God. He's just a cherub, nothing more, nothing less. And so we see here in Colossians 1.16, all things were created by him, things in heaven, things on earth, everything. The next thing you have to understand is not only did he create all things, but in Colossians 2, Verse 15, it makes this statement, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus Christ, in verse 14, he wiped out the handwriting of the requirement that was against us, but it was contrary to us. He nailed it to the cross. And once he did that, once he took our sins away, anything that would separate us from God, he took away the sin, he took away the shame, he took away the guilt. And once he did that, and all of our trespasses were forgiven, that's the disarming of the principalities, the disarming of the powers. He made this public spectacle of them triumphing over them in the work on the cross. So grant what God is doing. He created all things, and just in case you think, well, maybe Satan's going to have some power. No, there's already a victory. So keep in mind that when it comes to the spiritual warfare, that we're not striving for victory. We're standing in victory. This is the key. As we look to this, I want you to see that, yes, Jesus created all principalities and power. He then had victory over all principalities and power. But I want you to see what this whole thing with Satan is. I want you to understand who he is and how he came to being. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28, there's usually three passages that really should clue you into who Satan is. The first is Ezekiel 28. The second is a division by two, Isaiah chapter 14, and then, of course, Revelation 12. But in Ezekiel 28, I want to read to you just a few verses, starting in verse 11. And I'm going to read through verse 17. Ezekiel 28, verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, Take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and full of beauty. You were in Edom, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onks, the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, the emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Now understand what he's saying. You were the seal of perfection. You were literally full of wisdom and beauty. But we're going to see how here Satan became puffed up. In Isaiah 14, we'll look at it in just a moment. He says, I'm going to be like God. Now, understand what it says here in Ezekiel twenty-eight thirteen. It was prepared for you on the day you were created. Satan is a two-year-old throwing a tantrum. Now, in verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. So we understand that Satan is not an angel. He's a cherub, something different. I established you, you were on the holy mountain of God, you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, note here in verse 16, I cast you out as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart, verse 17, was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. So we see here what Satan is. He was a created being. He was a created cherub. He was puffed up. He was perfect in beauty. He was perfect in wisdom. But he used that beauty and he used that wisdom to exalt himself, not to give glory to God. And I think it's important that whatever gift that God gives to us, what do we do? We don't exalt ourselves with a gift. Look at what I can do. You give God glory. Thank you for that gift because without you, I could do nothing. And so what Satan does is although he was perfect in beauty and wisdom, he was perfect on the day he was created until he lifted himself up. Now, in that passage of Isaiah chapter 14, again, I want to read a couple of verses. I want to start reading in verse 12 and go through verse 17 so you can follow through who Satan is. In verse 12 of Isaiah 14, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And then he says this in verse 14, I will be like the most high. Now, he goes on to say in verse 15, "...yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of its prisoners?" So all the world, once God throws him down to the pit, are going to look at him and he's going to not look like a cherub, just look like this mealy little man. You're the guy? You're the one? You know, I can imagine him looking not not like Superman, but more like Don Knotts. If you know who he is and he's just this tiny tiny little guy and you're like, that's all you are? And and so we see here, he's not this mighty cherub when he's cast down. He's just this little, tiny little man. And so as he's there, God strips him, makes him as a man, puts him there in Sheol. Now, however, I want you to see when you look at that passage in Revelation 12, there's an identity that we see that comes with Satan here, kind of how he is and what's going on right now. I'm going to read from verses 1 through 13, and it's important that you grasp this because this is the creation of Satan. This is who he is. He's a created being. He's a cherub, but God's going to make him just as as any other man when he wipes him out finally in Sheol. But there is this period between the creation after the fall and before God puts them in sheol and that's found in revelation 12 let me read to you beginning in verse 1 through verse 13 now a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head the 12 garland of stars so as we see here it's a picture of of joseph's dream it's a picture of israel the sun the moon and the 12 stars Then, verse 2, being with child, in other words, Israel is going to bring forth the Messiah. We looked at that last week. Then being with child, she cried out in labor pain to give birth. So here, Israel bringing forth the Messiah. And so as the Messiah comes through Israel, verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great "...fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Understand the mission of Satan." He's referred to here as this fiery red dragon. Through his fall, his tail, he's going to draw a third of the angels with him. They're going to rebel against God. They'll all be cast down. And that's why it says that his tail is going to draw a third of the stars. A third of the angels are going to fall. But his whole goal is, is to devour the Messiah of Israel. In other words, look at verse 4 again, to devour her child as soon as it was born. He wants Israel not to have a Messiah. He wants to prevent Christ from coming. So, and this is why Herod, you know, as soon as Christ comes, by the time he's two years old and the wise men comes visit him in his house, that Herod wants all the children two and under to be slain. He wants to make sure That these wise men said, Hey, we've been following this star for a couple of years. I know we're late. We're not there at the manger. We're here at the house. But we want to visit He who will be the King of Israel. And so Herod has that decree to wipe out all the male children. So, this is what in verse four Satan wants to do. He wants to destroy the salvation of God's children Israel first and us second. Now we see here in verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. In other words, Israel's going to bring the Messiah. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. So when Satan thought, oh, I have victory, I'm going to crucify Christ, he said, that's fine. Uh, my blood is going to be shed for the world. He thought I could just take Christ out. What he didn't realize is this, is that God had a plan for Christ. And that as Jesus would die as an innocent man, and our sins would be placed upon him, then he would then in turn give us the very righteousness of God. He'd be able to do this swap. So as he does so, he then, after his, his death, his burial, he then has what? The resurrection. He has the ascension to God. And this is what it says here in verse 5. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God in his throne. So Israel is going to have the, the Christ come through it. Christ will die. He'll be buried. He'll rise. He'll be with God. He's going to come back a second a time. He's going to rule and reign, but then he's going to do what? Go right back to be seated with God. In verse 6, the woman fled to the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So here for three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, Israel is going to be in the wilderness protected by God while the Antichrist is just going nuts after the abomination of desolation. Verse 7 is where it's key. Follow in with this, please. This is the key to who Satan is. He has the war in heaven. He wants to ascend above God. Well, I, I love what it says. It doesn't say God fought with him. It doesn't say Jesus fought with him. It doesn't say the Spirit. Just Michael and his angels. So you got two-thirds against one-third, not much of a battle, so Satan is cast out. And note this, as it says here in verse 7, the war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought fought but they did not prevail nor was any place found for them in heaven any longer so the great dragon was cast out satan cast out of heaven that serpent of old called the devil and satan who deceives the whole world he was cast to the earth now here's the thing when satan was cast out of heaven he didn't wasn't cast directly into sheol he was cast to the earth how do we know genesis chapter 3 There was the serpent, there was a dragon there to deceive Adam and Eve. And as he deceived the man and the woman, told them, hey, you know, take of the fruit, take of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And of course, then they were in sin. But this is what happens. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now, here's the thing that trips up most people. Who are these angels? Are these angels... in in, in a bodily form? Are they, you know, non-bodily formed? What are they? Are the angels the demonic? Well, at this point, we realize here, God just calls them angels. There are going to be, as we will see, there are principalities, there are powers, there are what we call the fallen angels, and they are possibly the demonic. So what we're going to see is this, As we look to these roles that we see here in the demonic realm, I want you to see that in heaven, one-third of the angels were cast out. They followed a cherub, not an angel. Satan is a cherub. So Satan falls, draws a third of the angels with him. And so you have now cherubs in heaven. Satan is a cherub that has fallen. You have angels in heaven, and you have angels that are fallen. Now in verse 10, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. And it says this, the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him. This is the saints. They overcame him, the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony that they did not love their lives to their death. Now, verse 12 and verse 13 are going to be key. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and to the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now, verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Understand, the main role of Satan is to do one thing, persecute Israel. That's his main role. His main role isn't to bother me. It's Israel. Israel is his key. He wants to, first and foremost, prevent Christ from coming. That has now failed. And now he just wants to prevent those coming to the Messiah that came through Israel. And he's mad. He's mad. And understand that. That's why I call him like this little two-year-old who throws a tantrum. Now, keep in mind, he's a pretty powerful two-year-old. But he's still a two-year-old compared to God throwing a tantrum. And so he just says, listen, you have to understand, the devil has come down in the middle of verse 12 having great wrath. He is so mad. And he, he, this is what he realizes his time is short. It is a vapor that he has here on earth. And so when he comes to earth, he persecutes the woman who gives birth to the male child. His main thing is this, to torment Israel. That's the main thing that Satan does. So as we recognize here, this is the enemy. This is what he does. Um, So he's a created being. He's a created cherub. He was puffed up. He wanted to extend his throne above God. God cast him down. And once he was cast down, he had a battle in heaven. A third of the angels were with him cast down to the earth not to Sheol but to earth and as they were cast down keep in mind that he's throwing a tantrum and the main goal that he has is to torment Israel. So now that you understand that he's created let's move over to his control the next area there on that outline. Within the control, keep in mind that as Christians, we understand that there is an influence in the demonic that goes two ways. One is called oppression, demonic oppression, and the other is called possession, demonic possession. Oppression is the enemy trying to mess with you from the outside. Possession is where actually a demonic entity can actually come and possess you and influence the inside. And so you have the outward influence, the inward influence, oppression, possession. One of the things that I want to share with you first and foremost, there's a passage in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 16, we see here that Peter is there on the scene. And as Peter's on the scene, what he does is this. Let me read for you verses 21 through 23. From that time, it declares... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. In other words, it's going to look like Satan wins. Don't worry, I'm going to raise. I'm going to be, you know, risen. Now in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned, this is Jesus turned, and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. The Lord looks at Peter after Peter says, no, no, you, you, you can't be given over to the chief priest. You can't be given over to the elders. You cannot be killed and then rise on the third day. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. I have to be. Don't try to influence me. So at this point, keep in mind that Peter is not possessed by Satan. Peter is influenced or trying to be oppressed by Satan. It's an outward oppression. And so Peter, you know, gets a thought in his mind, although he's not possessed and what God does this is, you know, the Lord simply rebukes him. He looks to him in in verse 22, and and as Peter takes him aside and says it shall not happen, verse 23, the Lord turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Don't look to this as far as men's path. Look to this as far as this is God's path, what God needs to do to draw us to the Lord. Now, in the book of um, the gospel of John, John chapter 13, verse 2. I want to read this passage to you first, but you should be turning to Luke chapter 22. In John 13, verse 2, we see here where it says this, And supper being ended, the devil already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Here, Satan is influencing, as an oppression, Judas. But keep in mind this, that you cannot have the existence of both light and dark. Have you ever been in a dark room and you turned on the light? Where does the dark go? The dark flees. Understand that if you have the light in you, Darkness cannot be in you. It can be on the outside trying to influence you, but it cannot be in you. Once you have Christ in you, you have the Holy Spirit in you, you can no longer have a possession from Satan. We see here that what? Judas did not have the light. And we see here, at this point, John chapter 13, verse 2 said, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. Now, when you see the gospel of Luke chapter 22, let me read to you the first 6 verses. It declares this. Luke 22 beginning in verse 1. Now at the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas. Keep in mind, at this point, there is a possession that's going on. He he he, he basically comes and it says this, "'Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was m- numbered among the twelve. So he went his way, conferred with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray him to them.'" And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money, so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him in the absence of the multitude. Now we see here with these two disciples a distinct difference. There is an outward influence like Peter had, like Judas had, but Judas opens up the door, and because he doesn't have that spirit of God, Now Satan comes in and possesses him, influences him from the inward, and causes him to um, now betray the Lord. So when it comes to this area of Satan, and it comes to whether he can oppress, whether he can possess, understand that Satan, like all demonic entities, needs one thing. They need to get permission from dad. They have to have permission from God to do anything. A couple of passages to jot down just so you know how they're limited in control. In the gospel of Matthew chapter 8, there's this beautiful portion where here the Lord is trying to teach his, his uh, um. His disciples, just really who he is, the authority, the authority that he has over the spiritual realm. And so it says this in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. Now, when he'd come to the other side of the country, to the um, Gergenese, there met him two men demon-possessed coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? I want you to pause and look to what he says here. He comes over to this area of the Gerganese and there are two men who are demon possessed. And they asked the Lord as they now speak through these two men, have you come here to torment us before the time? What is that time? Well, remember how we read in Revelation chapter 12. He knows the time is short. They only have a short time to influence their will. God says you're going to have a time and then it's done. So with this, they said, are you come here to torment us before the time? Now, a good way off, verse 20 or verse 30, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, knows what they're doing, may we please, 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 sir. They're begging him, saying, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. So this man, these men, they're possessed with this demon called Legion, for there are many. There are approximately 1,000 demons that are inhabiting this person. They break off chains. They torment the countryside. But here what they're asking is this. Would you please, as they're begging him, permit us to go into the swine? They couldn't just do it on their own. They are in absolute obedience here to God. And he doesn't have to send an angel down. They are literally under his authority. And they don't question his authority. They don't, you know, fight against his authority. They just accept his authority. And isn't that interesting that the demonic accept the word of God, ask permission to do anything and look to the word of God, and God's creation that he made in his own image. Man, we argue with God. Even the demons don't argue with God. Why do we? They accept his words. They say, permit us, give us your word. And as they begged him, and they said, permit us to go into the swine. So he said to them, go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down to the steep place and into the sea and perished in the water. Isn't this interesting how pigs, pigs would rather die than be possessed? But here these men are like, hey, whatever, it's okay. Now keep in mind that there's one and then another comes, another comes. And so, you know, when when you try to do the cleaning of yourself versus letting the spirit come in and do the cleaning, well, yeah, you clean out the house, but what? Seven more come in, just more powerful than the first. And then you you cast them out and say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. But you do it in your own flesh. What happens? Seven more come in, and that's what's happened here. So this men, these two men, they allowed the demons to possess them. But the swine, as soon as the demon, like, dude, we're out of here. Just, 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 just let's go and drown ourselves. So they run off this deep cliff. They want nothing to do with the demonic. So when they perished in the water, verse 33, then those who kept them fled and they went away into the city and told every thing, including what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Isn't this crazy? The one who freed these men, the one who freed the men of the demonic possession, they said, would you please leave? I don't mind the demonic men, But I don't want the one who has authority over the demonic. And so here, and I find it interesting, that same word that is used, the the demons begged him to be cast into the swine. These people begged him to depart. And, And they want nothing to do with the Lord. So keep in mind that these here demonic need permission The same thing is true with Satan, make no mistake. There in the book of Job, in the first two chapters, if you want to turn there, you can. In the book of Job, we see in the very first chapter that here, I want to read to you from verses 6 through 12. It says, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, "'From where do you come from?' So Satan answered the Lord, "'From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it.'" And the Lord said to Satan, verse 8, "'Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil?' So Satan, verse 9 of Job 1, answered the Lord and said, "'Does Job fear God for nothing?' You Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on his every side, and you have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land? But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will certainly curse you to your face. And the Lord, verse 12, said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, grant that, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Note what happens. God here is there with those who are the sons of God. In other words, those who are led by the Spirit. And as he's there with the angels, Satan also comes among them. And Lord says, hey, Satan, saying, where you been? Oh, walking to and fro, just busy here down on the earth. This roaring lion, who can who I can devour. And he says, Hey, hey, by the way, now notice this Satan had no mention of Job until God does what? Hey, Satan, by the way, have you considered my servant Job? And saying, like, oh, guy, I, I can't do anything. You put a hedge about him, you put a hedge about everything that he owns, you put a hedge about everything that he has. You protected him. He said, I'll tell you what, you stop protecting him, he's going to curse you to your face. And God says, all right, I'll tell you what. You can can have all of his possessions, everything that he has, but you cannot touch him. Do you understand that Satan was limited? So what Satan is doing, what he's just being used by God as a vessel for God to do what? Through Job and through this period of, of trial in Job's life, he's going to glorify God in the most incredible way and give us insight into the spiritual. And we see here that, that you know, Satan had to get permission, and he gets it. But then also in chapter 2, we see again, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 6. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come from? So Satan said to the Lord, oh, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth. And then the Lord said to Satan... Have you considered my servant Job? because job did not curse the Lord. He didn't do anything. He just basically he fell to the ground there in chapter one verse 20 and he begins to worship. This is what job does. And so God goes, hey by the way, Satan, have you considered my servant job again? and and so he uses this almost as this this goading to Satan and so the the you know Satan here, Um, after the Lord in verse three says, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to the integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all, That a man has will he give for his life? But stretch out your hand now, and he and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. You understand how Satan is limited to only what he can do. He has to ask permission, and so when he asks permission, we see that yep, that is it. That he asked permission, he can only do so much. But that is it. He's very limited to what he can do. One other passage to make note of, and you find it there in your outlines, found in Luke chapter 22. I only want to read a couple of verses because here it's another point where Satan has asked permission. In Luke 22, beginning verse 31 and 32, it declares this, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, why in the world would Satan ask for Peter? And to be honest with you, I can see a conversation in God where there's a time where the sons of God present themselves before the Lord and Satan among them also, and the father said, Hey, have you considered my servant Peter? Oh, how can I do with that guy? And so eventually Satan asks, he has to ask for permission that he may sift you as wheat. That's what he wants to do. I want to sift you as wheat. But verse 32, Jesus says, but I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. In other words, Peter, you are going to stumble and you're going to be this little tiny broken pieces of a man. But understand, as you're going to be all these little pieces, your faith is not going to fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So here, Satan wants to destroy him. He says, okay, you can shift him, make him little, but don't worry about it. You can't destroy his person. You can't touch his faith. There's only so much that you can do. And I think it's, and it's necessary to realize that here, Satan and the demonic need permission. They cannot do anything on their own. So anything that happens in your life or my life that deals with spiritual warfare, understand this. There was a meeting in heaven and God has to give permission. And God will only give permission with what? Well, he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to bear. Just know that. So there's only so much and God says, yep, you're strong enough to get this temptation. Go ahead. I'm all right with that. You you may do this and no more. So we see here that they are limited in their power. But the blessing is when it comes to the Christian that we are not limited in our power. Let me read to you beginning in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, I want to read you just verses 5 through 8. It says, these 12, as Jesus sends out his 12 disciples, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And notice what he says in verse 8. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and then he says, Cast out demons. So he's now, and I want you to not make a mistake to what it says, verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded. So who are the 12? Well, if you go earlier in the chapter, we're going to see here that there's, there's all these ones beginning in verse 2 to verse 4. And the very last one in verse 4 is this, Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Jesus gave Judas power to do this. Preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead to cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Why do I make a point on this? Understand, Judas had the power to cast out the demonic. But yet what? Judas was not saved. Judas was there able to experience the presence of God, the power of God, the preaching of the Lord. And, you know, the Lord didn't say, hey, everyone except Judas, you guys can do this. Judas, sorry, man, you know, too bad, you know, I wouldn't want to be you. But he doesn't do that. He gives to him that permission to say, you too, all you 12, you're able to do this. Now, he also gives a power to the 70, and in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, I want to read to you verses, um, beginning in verse 17, and, uh, um, and verse 17 through 20, and it makes this statement, and if you look at your outline, it says 17 through 30, it's a typo, it's only 17 through 20, but read the rest on your own, it's great, it's, it's all Christ. But in verse 17, it says this. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they're excited. They come back and they're, they're, they're so excited, not that they're preaching the gospel, not that they're healing the sick, but they're excited that the demonic, that they have the authority over the demons. And they say, the demons are subject to us. And then make this note in your name. They're excited that the demons, because of the name of Jesus, they have authority over them. And now, what Jesus says in verse 18 is key. Notice what he says to the 70 and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So keep in mind that Jesus was there when Michael the archangel cast him out in the, and the rest of the other uh, third of the angels. He was there. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning, boom, boom, right down there, you know. It's just sort of like, you know, you're you're in a wrestling match, and he does this huge haymaker, picks him up, slams him down to the earth, here you are out for the count. But he's mad, he gets up, persecutes Israel, wants to wipe out the Christ. And he says this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, Verse 19, behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And then he says this in verse 20, and this is the key over the the power of the demonic. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You want real power? The real power is this. I'm loved by God. That's the key. Not that I have power over the demonic. I don't need to have that power over the demonic. Why? Because he's already disarmed them. I already know they have no power. I know that they can do nothing unless what? Unless God gives them permission. And there's a test that I have to go through. I don't have to fight against them. I resist, and I stay humble, and I look to God. That's what I do. I put on the armor of God. But I love what he says here. He says, don't rejoice in this. They were so excited because they had that power over the spiritual. And to be honest with you, that's a problem in many parts of the church today. There's a part because they're all looking at power over the demonic, the demonic influence here, the demonic, they see demons everywhere, under every rock, under everything, Satan tempting me here and the, and the demons tempting me there. Keep in mind that there are three things that will tempt you. One is Satan, the demonic, yes. The other is the world and the third is our flesh. I'll tell you what, Satan doesn't have to put a lot of time in on me because my flesh is working over time. And, and so what my issues is, maybe two percent Satan, but it's like, you know, 97 percent flesh, one percent world. And, and that's my issues that I have. And so I love how the Lord comes and says, "Just be careful of this." Be careful because it's not the power over the demonic, but it's what? That your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's a great example to this as far as wanting power over the demonic found in the, in the book of Acts chapter 19. Let me read to you verses 11 through 20. It declares this in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. I love how it starts out. So that even the handkerchiefs and the aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So it would be like this: Let's just say that after I get done preaching, and I, I, I you know, put my mask on, and I start walking out, and and you know, someone says, "Hey, can I have that mask? And I want to take it to the hospital." And you just, you know, put the mask, on, and all of a sudden that garment, and here what Paul does, the handkerchiefs and the aprons were brought from his body to the sick. The diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. They would simply put this this, this sweat rag of Paul upon someone and the evil spirits like, whoa, now I don't think he's running because the funk of the handkerchief. He's running because here God says this, this is a tool of the godly. And he's just using it as this this tool, nothing more, nothing less. And and he he says these handkerchiefs, the aprons from Paul and the evil spirits went out. Now, because they were seeing the demonic influence that Paul had in the positive and these Christians had as as a positive by simply using these items of Paul, Look at verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. So here, all of these guys are, you know, putting these handkerchiefs of Paul and they're claiming, you know, the name of Jesus go. And these, you know, sons of Siva come up and they say, hey, we're going to exercise you in the name of this Jesus whom Paul preaches. Well, look at verse 14. And also there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish priest, who did so. So these seven sons of Siva come. They want to exorcise this demon in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Well, look at verse 15. The evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Now, I'll tell you what, this is a sermon in itself. If a demon came and was around here and they looked at this church, I know one thing, the demon would say, Jesus, I know. And he would say, Lowell, I know. Would he be able to say, you, I know. Or would he say, who are you? Who are you? When he says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. I don't know you guys. You're in our camp somewhere. I just don't know who you are. So Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom, verse 16, the evil spirit was, leapt upon them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to both all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and the fear of them fell on all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. I love the heart of this because as we see here, this incredible, beautiful thing or God is being magnified. Verse 18, And many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds, and also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them in total 50,000 pieces of silver, and the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. All because these guys were beaten up by a demonic man, And he prevailed against them, overpowered them, ripped their clothes off of them. All seven, one against seven, and the seven lost. They go running out of the house, wounded and naked, and and all of a sudden, what? (laughs) Everybody talks about them. And not only that, but I love it because here Luke writes about them in the book of Acts. So, forever and ever and ever in the word of God that is eternal, these seven sons of Siva are known as losers. And, and against the one demonic entity. Now, keep in mind yes, it is only one, but you have to understand what? That here they have no power. They, they, they don't have Christ in them. Jesus I know. Paul I know because Jesus is in him. Who are you? I don't know you. There's a passage in the the epistle of 1 John, chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. Let me read it to you. It declares this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard which was coming and is now already in the world. And look at verse four of 1 John 4. And you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Understand, if you have Christ in you, the demon says, Jesus I know, you I know, and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And of course, we know that what Satan was cast down, the angels were cast down there in the world, but... but, he who is in us is greater. So we have victory over the demonic. We have victory over the spirits. But keep in mind, don't rejoice that you have victory over the spirit. What? Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice that Jesus so loved me. And so when it comes here to the last section that I want to look at, it's called the weapons. And within the weapons, I want you to see that the very first passage that I wrote down in the notes is found in the book of Romans chapter 8. I want to read to you verses 35 through 39 just so that you can grasp the key because the first weapon is not ours. It isn't ours. Take a look at verse 35 of Romans um, chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation distress or..." Persecution? Shall famine or nakedness, peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all the the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created things shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to know the first battle that you, the first weapon you have against Satan and against the demonic is God loves me. That's the first thing. When, they, when the, the accuser of the brethren comes, like we read about there in, in, in uh, um, Revelation chapter 12, the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. And what does he do? He accuses us before God day and night. One of the things that he tries to do is this, says what? God doesn't love you anymore because you did this. God doesn't love you because you thought that. God doesn't love you because you wanted to do this. Understand, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Height, depth, angels, um, any created being, principalities, powers, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the first thing. So if you want to know where your weapon is, it's not yours. It's God's love that has been placed upon you and will not be removed. Then the next thing is this. I want to read to you a passage in, in um, Thessalonians. And what I see is this. In the book of Thessalonians, I want to read here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, it makes this statement, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. You have to understand that as, as we see here, God is going to guard us. God is going to watch over us. And that is what God himself does. He says, I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to guard you. And so I love the heart of this because it says what the very first thing off the bat is what the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. He says, listen, I'm going to deliver you from all unreasonable and wicked men, but God is faithful who will establish and guard you. He's going to set you upon the rock. He's going to keep you upon the rock. That's what he's going to do. And and as he, he establishes and guards us, what? From the evil one. There's nothing that Satan can do other than what? The, the, when he gets permission. So when it comes to these weapons, I want to just share with you a passage that is, is key that all Christians should have, um, you know, memorized or they're in, in your, your uh, um, somewhere in your armory of weapons in Isaiah 54 verse 17 no weapon formed against us shall prosper nothing the enemy can do shall ever prosper in Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 he says this not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the Lord how do we have victory it isn't our might it isn't our power it isn't who we are it's what it's by his spirit it's through his spirit that he gives us faith. That faith isn't even ours. It's a gift of God. So realize that when, they, when, when, we, when we come to this whole area of weapons, that our weapon, first and foremost, is the love of God. Second, realizing that there isn't a weapon that can prosper it's the power of the Spirit of God however we as Christians we do realize that there is a passage that as Christians that's called this whole armor of God. you should be familiar with it it's found in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 11 I'm just going to read down to verse 17 and really share with you what this powerful tool is He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So this armor, keep in mind, allows you to stand against him so you can resist him. Doesn't mean you're fighting him, means you're resisting him. This is defensive armor. Now, as it's defensive armor, you stand against them. It doesn't mean you turn and you run. If you understand, this this armor only protects the front side, not the back side. So, but you're able to stand, you're able to resist. Why? He said, well, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So there is these demonic um, positions, if you will. There, there, there's like Satan, he's there, you have principalities, you have powers, you have rulers of the darkness, and then you have this spiritual host of wickedness, as you have rankings of the demonic. So keep in mind, in the same way as you have an army, you have generals, captains, lieutenants, you have gunnies, you have cat you know um, corporals and then you have down to the privates. Same thing here in the spiritual realm. You have that same rankings of angels. You have that same rankings of the demonic. So, the rankings in both the positive that are with God, the rankings of those who are far less in number, those who are against God, who are against Israel, who are seeking to literally wipe them out. So, Back to verse 13, it says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in that evil day, having done all to stand. Again, note this, that armor doesn't cause you to attack, that armor causes you to resist. And here it is, stand, verse 14, therefore, having girded your waist with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, which is with you be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's just the standard weapons that we have that God says very simply, this is what I have for you. So we were reading earlier as far as just where the enemy is as he's this this lion seeking to devour I want to share with you a passage found in the book of James and in the book of James let me read to you chapter 4 verse 7 it declares this therefore submit to God resist the devil and he will flee from you there's going to come a time where the devil is going to just get tired of knocking on the door And that's all he can do. He can roar. He can cause you to flee. But eventually, as you're standing fast in this armor of God, he's going to get tired. He's going to grow weary. And he's simply going to leave. And this is what it says. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Too many people say, I'm going to take on the devil. You don't want to do that. You want to do If one, one demonic entity can take out seven sons of Siva, not even Satan, you know. You know what Satan can do. Look at Job. Um, family wiped out, possessions wiped out, everything, his body affected. Know this. Go to God. And I love the heart of this because this is what we see here. Submit to God. That's the first thing. Whatever God says, that's what I want. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. This is the heart of what we see. So when it comes to the area of the enemy, when it comes to the area of temptations, Um, we already know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. If you're familiar with that passage of the gospel of Matthew chapter four, there's a point where the enemy, all he can do is tempt. All he can do is try to persuade the Lord to sin. He tempted Adam and Eve and he declares this statement. Since because you are the son of God, hey, commit these stones to become bread. If you're hungry. Well, What does the Lord say? Well, every time the enemy brought this um, area to say, hey, why don't you sin against God? He would simply say, listen, it's written, it's written, it's written, you shall not eat by bread, no man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Everything that he does, every quote that he does, he now quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, but every time the enemy tries a temptation, the Lord brings about the word of God. And how does he resist the temptations of the enemy? By submitting to God. That's all he does. Submit to God. And then eventually he leaves, the angels come, and they minister to the Lord. That's the key to what we see here as far as what God wants from us and how God ministers to us. There's a portion of scripture found in the um, book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read to you just a, a few verses here, beginning in verse 3 through 5. It says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, strongholds casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God." bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Understand that the battle that the enemy has is a battle of words. You have to understand it's a battle of words. He accuses us before God. What? It's a battle of words. What he does mostly is he's this roaring lion. He speaks loud, wants you and me to react to it. But understand, although we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. Why? No weapon against this shall prosper. And I understand my battle is not the, the carnal. It's mighty in God. This is what I do. So what is that battle? Well, that's our text. What does Daniel do? When the angel comes, he says, from the moment, from the first day you set your heart to understand, I've come because of your words. The very moment you begin to pray, I, God, reacted to your prayer. This is what we have. When Satan has the battle of words, we battle back by words. Prayer. Prayer is key. And I love the heart of it because what what prayer does is this prayer doesn't send us into the battle, prayer sends what? The angels into battle. And that's Daniel begin to pray, and yet the prince of Persia was there, and he's like, I'm going to stop anything. No, all of a sudden, <laughs> here comes the angel. He's okay, you with these, these kings of Persia, you might, but Michael's going to come. He's going to hold you all off. I'm still going to get to Daniel. There's a battle that God has, and I think it's important to realize that when it comes to that spiritual battle, our battle is won on our knees. There's an incredible thing where the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. I want to read to you two passages just to conclude what we're learning here today. The first is found in the book of Jude, chapter 9. It declares this, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring about an actual uh, reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Here, Michael the archangel goes up against Satan. They're now disputing over the body of Moses. What does he do? He quotes the word of God. He says, the Lord rebuke you, not me, him, his word. He's going to speak a word. That's going to be victorious. I love that about what God does. The last, of course, we already talked about in Revelation 12. In verse 7, where it made this statement, a war breaks out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. We're going to see that at the very end of all time, God's going to simply just take Satan, put him in a pit, done. That's it. I'm going to take his Michael. And say, okay, just put him away. That's the power of God. And I think as we realize here when it comes to the, the warfare, I want to just, if you forget everything, remember one thing. You are loved by God. And the love is the greatest power you will ever have. And so anytime the enemy comes and tries to attempt to dissuade you, just simply say, I'm loved by God and I love God. Why would I do anything against him? And so that's the victory that we have. Let's bar our hearts. Father, we do thank you for who you are and how you work, your goodness and your grace, your power and your love. And we accept that love. We accept that love that is ours through Jesus Christ, that nothing will be able to separate us from that love. That love is the greatest weapon we will ever have. And we don't rejoice that we have the power over the spiritual, but that you so loved us and you've died for us that our names are written in the the Lamb's book of life. There is a spiritual battle but, Lord, you've taught us through Daniel that, and through Colossians. That battle is won. You, Jesus, there upon the cross, gave victory. So we don't have to battle for victory. We're battling from victory. As we just set our eyes upon you, our love upon you. And just simply, as the, the enemy comes, we want to say, you know, Lord, you rebuke him. You, you, let your word declare what you want to be done. And we want to simply become instruments of you. That you would be glorified through our responding back to you in love and all things. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. Amen.